0: Thanks for tuning in again, everybody. We're back with your favorite podcast, Lucas, Tigers, and Bronze. Oh, my. Happens. So today,
1: today's a really special episode, guys. We have Rob Petrozza, the co-founder, head of product, CTO of Rally. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last two years, you know what Rally is. And fractional shares are changing the game. They really are. And I had this whole intricate, exquisite kind of introduction prepared here. But we're doing the pre-interview. And you guys know sometimes I try to capture the pre-interview stuff because that's where there's so much gold. And Cage says, I've been getting emails from Rally since 2017 when Rally was just wine and spirits and cars. Cars. Sorry. Cars. cars. Hey, Did I say cards? They-
0: yeah, Pam. Cars, cars, Pam. Pam. Uh, I can get to the bottom of this whole Pam the pan. I could definitely yeah. look M- inside into M- the
1: pan situation. Yes, yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> That's it. So with that, I, I was like, Cage. I think you should kick it off. I mean, you've been you've been winning since day one. Yeah, man. I know that they're on Lafayette now. I know, you know, I know about, I know about the the funding rounds. I've been, listen, they, not only have I been getting emails from them since 2017, but they've been getting emails from me saying, when are you going public? When can I invest? When am I buying stock?
2: That's it. We, we are aggressive with the emails sometimes. So we've held (laughs) off a little bit lately, but I got to give you credit for, for accepting those emails and still being on the list. The no, last dude, five years man I give
0: you credit for that listen so this is what we're, so we're talking with 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 rally road here but what's funny about it when I just said why Andrew wanted to turn the turn turn the machines back on you know like the Duke brothers here in trading place turn the machines back on right what is because I I said Rob has like it's like an evil genius here it's like mega mind he's sort of bluish looking I mean it's a bad camera he's working with right now but yeah. so so mm-hmm. it, what's he tapped into the lunacy of, of collectors, you know? And, and he's, we were talking about how it's cars and everybody loves cars. And then it was whiskey and then wine and, and then baseball cards. And I'm like, you should come to my basement. Like I have all that. And he's like, well, we're all kind of that way. And he was showing us how in his office, he's got some stuff too. And, you know, just this year, the lunatics have kind of been proven right. Is sort of the sort of, you know, that, that's like, that's the moniker, right? I mean, collectors, what a year we're having here. And what a year you guys are having.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know what it is. It's one of those things where it's like everything, we've always looked at what we do as start with the categories that we care about. And it just turns out that everybody at this business, everyone at this company, whether it's me and my co-founders, Chris and Max, or the team we put together, everybody has their own thing and everybody goes like super deep on their thing. So like uh, we have a couple people here who were super into like vintage technologies. So and we started thinking about going to like vintage Apple products and some of the stuff that really structured where the world is now in terms of tech we tapped into those people and got inside of their brain first. But it was all like, and then for me, it was always with cards. And for Chris, it was with cards. So it's like, we've kind of always sort of set the table with, we, we know we're lunatics and we accept that. And the <laughs> lunacy goes on paper from the people who know it from the craziest standpoint first. And then we add that data layer to it and validate it for the platform. And it turns out every, like there's a group that cares about everything. And I think what happened this year, the amount of information that everyone has access to and the ability to find other people like you And not having to like go to the national to meet people who really care about this one esoteric piece of the hobby or not have to sort of be in Silicon Valley to understand that one piece of tech that everyone cares about. That's more accessible than ever. So now you have platforms like Rally and everyone else is coming to the space. The on ramps are there, too. So everyone's lunacy has come to the forefront. And it turns out like a lot of people were right and they got proven right in the last like 18 months or so for sure.
0: Yeah, it's no longer taboo, right? That's it. I mean i remember getting an email it's like hey buy a piece of a 1980 Kuntash. and i'm like come on like this was my (laughs) dream car you know let's go you know like you know like who else is doing this or like you know a a 93 jaguar xj you know i mean like i'm like what are these these guys you know they're onto something 55 porsche right you guys did right we we were trying to find like
2: it's we always looked at it like we go into any asset class any vertical now we're in like close to 15 or 16 i don't even know the exact number but when we think about what we've done to this point where we've come from, the fact that we're putting, like, you know, uh, dinosaur fossils and, like, crees <laughs> and stuff that I never thought about, like, seven, eight years ago, they do have shared DNA. Because to your point, it's like, you know, you're a wine and whiskey guy, but you're also a car guy. You're also this. You're also paying attention to cars. They all have that shared DNA. And the biggest, like, the metaphor we always use, which is how we pitched this even early on, when we always looked at, like, people thought not rally world, was just this car thing and Rally Road to us was the other Wall Street. That's why we named it that. And it was like a double entendre for cars too. But the idea was that get a bunch of people together, rally them together, the things that you all care about, we'll make our first investment together. So it started with classic cars, but the idea was always like, we pitch it the way that when you invest in a 1985 Ferrari Testarossa, that's a very specific car that everybody who's like around our age remembers when when they were kids, that was like the car. That was Ferrari from the 80s, you know, it's on every TV show. But then you start thinking about that shared DNA, and we've seen it on our platform. Someone might make their first investment in that car or might see that first. But it's an easy jump to say, you know, a, a Fleer Jordan rookie makes sense with that car because it's like Jordan's favorite car, and there's that, like, iconic picture of him pulling up, and it's the MJ Airplates and his Tesserosa. And then you go into, like, all right, he also, you know, he drank his whiskey and he did this. Like, You could put it all together with that same sort of collector ethos and not be stuck in one vertical. So we always look for those as living together. And, again, it's like – Everybody that was looked at as like a lunatic for going so deep and knowing everything about, you know, about the 86, 87 FLIR set, those people were way ahead of the game. It turns out they were way more than, than anybody expected. And that's kind of what we're always trying to
0: key in on with every asset vertical, where there's that shared DNA between all of them. I love it. Listen, my wife's never going to own a Birkin bag, but with you guys, I could buy her a share of one.
2: <laughs> yeah, my go- my, that's a problem. My girlfriend knows we have all these Birkin bags here and she wants access to them in full. I'm trying to keep them in like the storage. You know what I mean? I like, keep them away.
1: You got to hide them. <laughs> Rob, break. take me back. So, Cage, I don't know if you know this. Rob went to uh, Philly U. So he spent oh. a few years and, you know, I'm a kid, I am love Philly guys. At least it, it just, it, it's just my spirit. So take yeah. me back. What's the origin story? I know Philly U. Yeah. You worked for Sony. You had a few creative roles. Take me back to the origin story, if you don't mind. Rob.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it's weird. you know what? Everybody like every startup has like the origin story. And it's, you know, it's a little bit of BS most of the time. But ours is entirely true. So the thing is. I went to school for art and I and I was in Philly for, for five years. And I think a lot of what was going on back then in the early 2000s, design wasn't what it is now. So you had to like draw and learn everything from scratch. And I was leaning more towards fine art because I mean, to keep it real, like the iPhone wasn't out yet. So the, the thinking about like developing and designing apps wasn't a thing. You were thinking about websites. So at that point, like I was always super into art. Art was completely unattainable, the stuff that I knew and the stuff that I wanted, because then you were talking like. Millions of dollars, the internet didn't exist the way it does now. The way we communicate didn't exist, so you couldn't even find the information on where to get stuff. You had to walk into a gallery, they treat you like you're a joke, and then you walk out having nothing, you know what I mean? So that was always something I thought about. Like if I could do something where we democratize something like that, that would be interesting. At the same time, Chris, um, my co-founder is, I've known him for 20 years, our third co-founder. I went to high school with him in Brooklyn. Our third co-founder, Max, went to college with Chris. So we all were like, let's work on something together. I came from a design background. And then i built a bunch of products as a bunch of startups along the way building out products as technology kind of caught up to what i thought the vision would be for the future max was at a bunch of different uh, banks doing private placement deals was at barclays for you know the better part of 10 years he knew how to structure these things as like real financial instruments and chris was just the smartest kid out of our entire friend group who understood technology and saw around every turn and he was a vc and he was an operator of a couple of different companies so he was the one who was like the most responsible person in the group that could bring it to life so I thought about it from like this art perspective and from a collectibles perspective in general. Max thought about it from the financial perspective. Chris and the real origin story of the company had a choice when we got out of school. He had a little bit of money saved and he really wanted this 1980s Porsche. And it was a very specific Porsche. And he had enough money to buy a house. Like, and that's the, that's the real American dream is like, you know, buy a house in your 20s It's crazy. Like, no, I, I didn't do that. Nobody does that, and especially in the 2000s. Nobody was doing that. So he talked to his parents about it and, like, everybody. He's like, I'm gonna go do this. I'm gonna buy the Porsche. And it's like, Are you, ins- what are you, are you, you're a lunatic. Are you insane? Why would you buy that? It makes no sense. It turns out, like, he's up a little bit on the house. The Porsche was like a 12x from where it was back then when he would have bought it, you know? So that's like, we sat down in 2015, 2014, thinking about how we could work together on something. We all had these individual stories. And it was like, you know, there's some new legislation that was called the Jobs Act that was trying to make it a little bit easier for non accredited investors. To invest in things like startups or small businesses and we we're like yeah we could probably leverage some of the same stuff let's talk to lawyers who are smarter than us and see if it's even possible to start and then all of a sudden we were just building it based on those origin stories you know what i mean so it was really everybody talks about like yeah we built this organically we were thinking about it for a while like that actually happened here we all had jobs at the time and by the time we all left we forgot that we what we were even doing this became the only thing we worked on and that was like to take no salary for a couple of years until it's done. And we were in a position to really bring it to market in like 2017, which when we first launched with cars.
1: People don't give enough credit to the jobs act. Like I'm glad you brought that up because it changed the game. It's a small piece of legislation, but it completely changed the game. It gave rise to, uh, companies like Kickstarter and it allowed what's like kind of called unaccredited investors to put their money into securities. And get a return. I, I'm
2: yes. glad you brought that up. I was signed in by Barack Obama. That's it's a that's, weird, you know, it's a crazy thing because like a lot of people, you know, the powers that be get a bad rap sometimes because it is tough. Like we live in this world where there's this mad, this crazy wealth gap. You know what I mean? But it, the SEC recognized that if you want to close that gap, you have to provide the same opportunities to everyone that you do for that top one percent. And it takes a long time to put that to work. And companies like ours only spring up after it has a little bit of uh, a little bit of. Le- you know, it works for a little while with something else and someone realizes the way we can turn it and change it into this. But really that's like the biggest thing that you've seen. I think part of what this crazy rise in collectibles and in so many of these, what were considered these kind of niche investments have really taken rise is that the on-ramps are able to exist because of that jobs, Zach, and because of sort of that, that want to sort of close that gap a little bit and make these really ridiculous, super cool, super unique investments possible. Whereas before this, if you wanted like a crazy classic car, or you wanted access to, you know, a PSA 852 Mantle, like, you got to know the person who has it directly and have the conversation with them. And you got to do it in a way where they trust you to have the money. You're probably both already rich. Like, that's what we were trying to avoid that. And the jobs that made that possible for sure.
0: I love it. Unbelievable. I mean, it's amazing stuff, man. It really is. I mean, the story is nuts. And, you know, I mean, you guys were you guys were around for a while doing this stuff. I mean, now, you know, now there's a, a whole bunch of fractional, you know, uh, folks out there, um, which is good. Right. Though they say, you know, you know, the imitation flattery, all that other fun stuff that, you know, that you got going on. Right. But yeah. um, how often do you get contacted with somebody saying, oh, I want I want to take that one down like it's uh, private. You often, get that pretty often? often
2: enough. I think that we anytime it's a qualified offer and it's at a
0: premium, like we'll always bring
2: that to investors first. And I think that that's something that we. That we try sort to of figure out really early on is that there would be situations where somebody with money who wants access to this thing will come to us and say, "Can I have it?" And especially in the last year or so, so we've had, call it, I think 15 or 16 individual buyout offers, most of which came over the last 18 months. A lot of times, we'll see it where it's you know well the offer comes in, you know, well below the current price that it's trading out of the IPO price. I think those are situations where we want to make sure people know it's not an eBay best offer type situation. (laughs) We we, kind of have a a data layer that speaks to what the value of these assets are. We wanna bring great offers to the investors individually, but we kind of like pioneered that system in a way that when we started putting that together and thought about what a 48 hour voting period might look like and what the third party advisory board who makes the determination based on the investor feedback looks like, what that process looks like. We want to make it as easy as possible for investors to get paid and for the buyer who wants it to get access to the asset. So the big thing that we wanted to do different was not necessarily have that bring it to auction model right away or do something where it required a month or two months or a bunch of sort of non-competes and the same things that some of the auction houses do to make it simple. So that process now is very much somebody comes in, they make an offer, our team qualifies it, that makes sure that the person who wants to make the full buyout has the money, is available to put an escrow and can make that move quick, and then bring it to our investors, to turn everything around in five days. But I think the biggest thing that we've done, part of the reason we wanted to diversify this platform and make it this all encompassing collectibles app is that it's really a living museum. It's like a digital museum. If you want the best, if you want access to the best, most unique assets in the world, we want you to be able to come in a rally and use that as your catalog and think about what you might want to buy off the platform too, because like, you know, we talked about it before we started, everybody's a collector and collectors typically don't just narrow in on one specific thing. There's a group of people who definitely do but a lot of people with money, too, especially who would be some of those buyout candidates who are taking it off platform, you know, they want to have a, a Triceratops in their living room. Who might have told them that that's wrong? If they want to buy ours and want to come to the investors and make an offer, we have a really great one, you know, 70% bone structure. We have, a, we have the right one for you, most likely, you know. I'm a is it the, one from Scott, the, is I know. it the
1: one from the Entourage episode? The one Adrian Peterson owned?
2: It's not. But we were thinking about that when we put that on the platform. Like, there's, a, there's these weird, like, cultural moments along the way. Like now we have a declaration of independence broadside and it's like did Nicolas cage steal that and it's like that's the only conversation we have over the last like three weeks i'm just saying yes from now on, i'm like yeah that's, that's the same one <laughs> both you know what i mean but that's you get on a good point too because it's like we want to get assets that aren't just relevant right now but are going to be relevant in the future and we have like again there's a data layer to everything we do but so much of this is field because there's a lot of things that we get presented either to purchase or to put on consignment or just some sort of shared equity model in that we we pass on, even though it's a great asset. We look at it like if it already kind of had its moment or it's something we don't envision our user base looking at and understanding 5, 10, 15 years from now, it might not be something that makes sense for Rally. So we'll go back to that conversation if the opportunity arises or if we could do something a little more opportunistically and get a great deal for our investors. But if something's already had its moment, it's not that interesting. To me when I think about something like dinosaurs, that's something that like in 6th grade you learn about, 5th grade you learn about, and it's always this thing that's prevalent in movies, in TV. It shows up as cameos in places. Everybody knows what it is. All those elements together, and the fact that it's it's been popular for 65 million years, to me, speak to the fact that the future is bright, at least in terms of relevance. So we're always looking for stuff that's gonna be relevant, not just when we put it up on rally, but for the near and the long-term future too.
1: Cage, if you don't mind, because I mean, we're gonna go in a lot of different directions here, and and, uh, Cage actually just gave a Jurassic Park box of cards as a play. Uh, but for people out there it. that don't oh, know,
2: I have that yeah. said, That's like one of my favorite boxes. Buy- I, I bought that and all the I by the bell box at the same time. I went straight. <laughs> <90. Yeah. laughs>
1: That's amazing. For people that don't know though, like let's lay the f- foundation. How does Rally work?
2: Yeah, so to, to back all the way up, like Rally is a platform for buying and selling equities and unique, often one-of-a-kind assets that have a history of appreciation in most cases, but more so, they're these things that kind of hit on these cultural moments and they're really special. A lot of times they're super expensive. They're out of reach for the average collector. We've always looked at this as a real way to sort of put your money where your mouth is. If you care about an asset, you feel like the future is bright for it. You feel like you want to be able to make an investment, but you want, you know, the PSA 10 version, you don't want to buy the PSA three on eBay. And you want to hold the, the best quality example. That's what rally brings to market. So each asset is its own investment, has its own total value. It's got its own share price, its own investors. We open the initial offerings in the app, the first time you can invest in something, around every day, every, every two, three days sometimes, but mostly every single weekday. Um, similar to the way an IPO would run, it fills with investors. Once it closes, 90 days later, we open up what we call trading windows, which allows for buy, sell, and bid, ask. So you can either add to your position, or if you own shares, you want to sell them, put them on the marketplace for another buyer to come in and make, the, uh, and make their investment. So, you know, the secondary market part is something that we're always working on. We have a bunch of new stuff that we're rolling out. The primary market for those IPOs is something that we're always looking at the best quality assets to put this digital museum together. But really the whole goal is to bring the people that care about these individual pieces, whether it's a card, a car, a dinosaur, a declaration of independence, and give them access in a way that they haven't had before and do that with no minimum. So the share prices start anywhere from like 10, 15 bucks. They go up to a couple hundred bucks but we always wanna make it approachable for all different sort of income levels and for everybody who really cares about it. So that's what we started building in 20, you know, 2015. And now we're at a point that with, you know, close to 300 individual assets, around 30 million under management, uh, a really active marketplace. Like we're thinking about the future and what this looks like. And we really wanna sort of have Rally live in a place where you have all your equities, maybe they're in Robinhood or they're in Schwab or whatever. You have your crypto, it's all in Coinbase. Rally should be and will be the place where all your alternative assets live, and whether that was a card or any of these other asset classes, that's where we want to be. So that's a—I should have done that to start. I did—I waited until 30 minutes in to tell you what Rally actually is. That's on me. My bad. <laughs> we uh,
1: we have a non-traditional podcast, and I think that's why people love us because we treat this more like a, a radio show than anything else. But w- what makes Rally unique is so with Coinbase, for example, when IPO. E-Trade is a secondary market where you, where you go ahead and trade, but they don't really set the IPO price. What makes you guys unique? And I'm curious, how do you guys arrive at an IPO price, right? How do you set the value of these assets, which is really difficult
2: to value some
1: of them in the first place?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an art and it's a science at the same time. I think a lot of what we do because we have to run these are all ICC qualified offerings. So a lot of times you know, we'll be setting up prices with a little bit of a predictive model too. We're thinking about what happens two months from now or three months from now when this finally goes public. But the way that we price it isn't that dissimilar than the way a company IPO would be priced and that we're always looking at the tangible. So like the comps, anything that looks close or feels close that goes to auction or is insured at a certain value or is part of a primary sale is a big part of it always. The second part is that we have sort of some internal data that speaks to and it's part of the social listening that we do for every asset that speaks to the fact that something's, you know, very hot right now but you know we're in a or we're in a cooling off period right now with this consolidation that speaks to the way we should price as well in a market like we're in right now it gets a little bit tougher and you know admittedly there have been times where we had to reprice higher or lower in certain cases too to have the ipo be in range because we want to have this be an efficient marketplace we don't want to be the people who are outliers wrong on price one way or the other because we want their obviously we believe in these assets but we want them to be tradable too we don't want to be in a situation a year from now, we put a bunch of great IPOs on, but maybe they were priced wrong. Maybe we thought differently about what the market was doing. So times like this, the last, call it eight, nine months specifically, it's been a, a little bit of a war of attrition where we're trying to make sure that we're factoring in every possible data point. But at the same time, the mar- we also want to make sure it's a responsible marketplace. And I think that's a big part of the way that we price right now too, because we have so many things that are kind of one of one. And when it comes to pricing those specific assets or when there's... Not, you know, significant auction results within the last year or within the last two years. That's when we really sort of, you know, buckle down on some of that secondary social listening type of data that speaks to what the value could or should be. And then inevitably, like we put that on the platform, we leave it up to our investors to make that determination as well. So we make sure we do our best to put as much information and education around what those comps are, what, you know, an eight and a half means relative to a nine. We make sure every email that goes out for that specific IPO has the data and the details to speak to where that pricing might have come from and kind of what's happening in the market as a whole. And we're doing more now on our side to build out content. So it's a little bit, you know, you, you, you're you walking the line because obviously none of this, I should have said this earlier, none of this is investment advice and none of it ever is. We want to leave the, the pricing if we got it right or got it wrong. We want to make sure that our investors have access to say yes or no in those situations. But we're also in a place now that we want to be able to sort of bring more content to life and do more things where we can kind of speak on and have the expert opinion. We haven't to this point. We've been conservative in a way that we want to make sure the market speaks for itself and our app speaks for itself. But I think now, you know, we're, we're ramping up on our legal and regulatory side of bringing a bunch of people in-house that can help us sort of put some of those pieces together. So the next step is all the content that really speaks to where that pricing comes from, what the future might look like. will be a big part of what we do for the rest
0: of this year. I love the regulation discussion, if I'm allowed, just to take a second there, because, you know, I consider the um, I consider the card space and some of the other spaces, a collectible space in general, sort of like the Wild Wild West, right? It's, it's one of those things where, you know, I think you get a bad element that sort of gravitates to it because you can you can fly pretty close to the sun here and not get burned. Um, you sure. know, there's a lot of we talk about manipulation in the market. We talk about, you know, fake comps. We talk about bad sales. We talk about pump and dumps. We talk about all kinds yeah. of stuff. That in the market you wouldn't be allowed to do, but in cards and in collectibles you are able to do. And one of the cool things, and maybe you can talk about it probably better than 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 I am. Um, you know, lawyer, but not not a not a securities regulations lawyer. I mean, I know the 33, 34 Act pretty well, but uh, you know, I studied them, but it's not what I do for a living. But what I would tell people is you guys have to file all these things. I mean, I remember back in 17 when I first started looking into Rally Road, you had a 69 Boss Mustang offering. It was like 50 something dollars a share. It was just like a crazy, you know, awesome 302 Mustang. That's the kind of car I want. But I wasn't buying the car. But, you know, you could buy shares of the car, right? And I remember, you know, kicking the tires on it, so to speak. You can go online. I think it's like Edgar filing. You can get, you can get SEC filings. They're public. I mean, yeah. you guys must file stuff almost every day because your stuff unlike the rest of the collectibles market is regulated it's yeah. very regulated it's it's not it's not put something on eBay and have your friend bid on it It's, you have to get SEC (laughs) approval of this, right? You have to get, you know, when you guys do an offering, you do, you do diligence on these things. You come up with a price, you come up with an offering plan, you come up with what the shares are, you know, the company that's registered in Delaware has to make this filing and, you know, blah, blah. like it is a legit thing and it's public, right? It's out there. People can see your filings, right? And I mean, talk about how that provides a level, I think, of security for somebody who's looking to invest in your assets.
2: Yeah. I mean, listen, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's, it's a good thing in that we want to make sure this is all public. The problem is that some of those documents are 180 pages, 300 pages, but it's also something where it's an important part of what we do because when we have to sort of explain what we're doing and why we're doing it, what a sourcing fee is, why we're sort of bringing this asset to market over this one, what the risks look like, that's all there. And that's not just like indemnification. That's more of one of those things where we want to make sure that You know, if we can take all the stuff you see on Instagram too, like anything we put on Twitter, those are all pieces that are in the asset description that gets submitted to the SEC. So, in a position that we're in, like we're not in a position to tell a lie about an asset. We're not in a position that we could have. You know, I'm not going to name any names. Everybody knows on eBay who the sellers are that are that are in situations where like some of the comps are a little bit crazy, and it's most more than likely some sort of chandelier bidding or. You know they're running around talking crazy about something that they're about to put on ebay in two weeks they have an influencer talking about it like we're not we've never done that and we can't and wouldn't you can't, want you it. can't, we can't, can't do that. it so as i'll give you the example like the there are people that we know that are just that love this space and love the hobby in general and they, they speak about it romantically i will love to be doing that sometimes because i believe in it but like I just we're in a position that we care more about the investor and the investor safety and making sure that all the pieces that we're putting out are as as real and not open to interpretation as possible. If that means short term, the name rally isn't all over the place. We're fine with that. We're playing the long game. I think we've always thought about it in that if it's not something that we're comfortable putting into an SEC circular and submitting, it's not something that we would put out on any social channels that I would go on a podcast and talk about, too. So to say we believe in all these individual assets is absolutely true. We take a small position in all these assets, and we can't sell until the asset sells. That's all true. The stuff that we put into the, into the app in terms of descriptions, comps, all that's passed through the SEC. So I think part of it is that the checks and balances, but it's also a good template for what we can and can't say. So you bring in you know, a 22-year-old who's super ambitious and wants to take over social and run with all of our stuff. We do that, but we also let them know, like, here's exactly what we need to be saying. Here's where the pieces come from. And everybody knows that we're building for the long term as opposed to just trying to do like, you know, this isn't a pump and dump thing. We're not trying to do We're trying to build a real efficient marketplace. To do that, you have to stick with the rules and stick what you submit to the SEC for sure.
0: Listen, that's part of the, what I love. I mean, I will tell you that, especially with cards, um, it, it took a little while for Fractional to sink in with me. I was always, uh, I, need that, I need the tangible asset. Yeah, you know, I, I, will, I will just buy the best one that I can buy that I'll own the whole one. But okay. obviously the, the best asset you know, the best graded one, the best version of it, you know, in most cases is gonna be something I can't own the whole thing because I'm not I'm not Andrew. I'm not independently wealthy living in Mexico, you know, I'm, I'm not a, an international man of mystery. You know? <laughs> I have a budget, you know. So but but you know i, but you, get
2: know, it. I know. but you know like that's the problem is that I'll tell I'll give you an example. Like we when we first built this business, like we were talking to everybody early on, this is in 20 the first conversation I had with like well like Ken Golden for example was 20 2015, 20, I forget about this business specifically, and a million ideas and what we can do. And everybody knows, like, when Ken goes on, on TV, like, he means it. Like, he's all in on everything he talks about.
0: That's right. I,
2: and I feel the same way sometimes. So he's like, Why you do this? You do this. I'm like, ah, I want to, but it's not what we do as a you business. So that yeah. thing, that's the, right. And that's always been, people look at that as an issue sometimes outside looking in. But for us, it's what you just said. It's that, like, we want to make sure the best quality examples get into the hands of the people who love it, you know what I mean? Yeah. To do that effectively, we have to kind of stick to all those rules too. we've always started and I'm the same as you, like holding it and having it is a really important part, is an important part of my life. And my my girlfriend will testa is gonna kick me out of our apartment because it's crazy, it's full of stuff. And I have I had an extra room that's I don't know what's garbage and what's real anymore. I have no <laughs> idea what's personal collection when it might, I don't even know anymore. It's a disaster. That being said, we always wanted rally to be kind of like a compliment to a collection too, because if I could buy a you know. A PSA one version of a 52 mantle hold on to that, and then also have like a seven or an eight or the best possible version of my portfolio. And that's the investment piece. I've looked at, I've always looked at that as something that, that we wanted to build here. So, you know, I own a, uh, a I have like a bunch of megalodon teeth, like <laughs> in the individual unit, but we have like the full, you know, 50, 15 foot jaw that's going to be
0: on rally too for 6 you know fans. what I have to ask, right? I have to, is it the one that was caught by Jason Stanford? <laughs>
2: no that's not yeah, it wasn't a part of it but it's got the same <laughs> dynamics, similar dynamics but i mean it's one of those things like to your point there i would would i love to have you know 20 psa 10 jordans like yeah i would love to have a bunch of a bunch of 86 to jordan keep them in the collection it's just not possible it's only i mean it's only 300 but that being said like i'm not spending four or five hundred thousand right now but i'm really happy with my psa six that i got for like 800 you know two and a half years ago three years ago you know what i mean
1: yeah. No. Fat, I mean, fat, fat finger cage. Yeah. <laughs> well, well I, I told you it, I do. I
0: do, I do. I do disconnected on, on iPhone six. No. I, yeah. I tried to like you know. Rob, do
2: you phone. know my co-host? Uh, grew up in Brooklyn. <laughs> so you're a Brooklyn kid, right? I can I can tell I can tell by the accent, but I wasn't 100 sure. And I've heard him talk about it on the podcast before a little bit, but I don't know if it was like just speaking about the past or not, I wasn't sure.
0: What accent? Talking yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah I, get, I, get, I get the same. People ask me the same thing when I'm in, mean, like,
0: when I get excited or have like half a drink. All of a sudden, it comes out, and I have to That's explain it. my entire past. I was at a communion this weekend, <laughs> and one of the poor girls there kept saying X. And the, the folks from New Jersey were really giving it to yeah. her. And then they ask you a question like, no, it's A-S-K. Yeah. Not, not a uh, S <laughs> K. They end the night asking for an espresso. It's one of those. Yeah. So, let me get an espresso. Yeah. Let me yeah. ask you, do you guys have espressos here? Yes. Let me ask, let me
1: ask you, Rob. Were you, me. were you a uh, artistic kid? Or were you an entrepreneurial kid? What was Rob like in middle school and high school?
2: Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, it was, you know, it was weird. It's And this also speaks to a little bit of rally too, is that like we, I got lucky in that I was a little bit younger than everybody and a little bit smaller, And the, but the older kids kind of liked me. So all like the athletes were always friends with me, but I was also friends with like the kids that were in plays and like I was in plays and I would draw and all the things that were looked at as like this emo kind of left field thing in, in middle school and high school was always what I was sort of gravitating towards. I just wanted to like design and be a part of like an art community. And, but I got to have like... I was popular enough to hang out with popular kids. Like that's why that's so worked out for me. But that being said too, when I was really young and this is this is in Brooklyn, my parents were super young. They just let me do whatever I wanted. So like you gravitate towards the things that make you happy and art was always something that made me happy. And like music was always something that made me happy. So it was like this, this weird melding of the worlds too in Brooklyn where you're not just seeing one type of person and hearing one type of music and doing one type of thing. You get exposed to all that stuff at a young age. You have no choice but to like turn it into a career. So eventually it became a little bit of an entrepreneurial thing. And it was like, you know, like every other kid, you're selling fake IDs in high school, you're selling sneakers and all this other stuff. Like that was, that's what everybody in Brooklyn did though. So it wasn't like a, it was a weird, like I brought that to Philadelphia with me and it became like, I tried to start some businesses here and there, but that was like always, it's just what you're exposed to, is what you wind up doing. That's kind of what I was around when I was young. So I got lucky in that, like art became a way to make money eventually. My college
1: business was a buddy and I, we both, Philadelphia, I went to Drexel and our senior year, a bike shop. Went out of business. So we bought out all the inventory, created a, a uh, kind of a staging room in our house and sold it all on Craigslist. But I'm That's curious, Cage it was so much it was bikes, it was DNG bikes and boards, Donnie's and Goldberg That's bikes crazy. and boards. And then the stuff like the little stuff that you know is a kind of tough to sell. We just a skate park opened up, so we set up a, a booth and we uh gave it away to like the kids from the area. And you know yeah. Philly. Yeah. Philly is diverse, man. It's That's right crazy. there. You're amongst the people. There is you're right there curious what's new york been like during covid and how have you at rally how have you guys had to kind of pivot or adapt, adapt during this time
2: yeah it's you know what's crazy because it's like new york now this the last two weeks is dramatically different and that if you were walking around in soho without a mask on like two weeks ago three weeks ago people looked at you crazy. You could not, you had to run back inside and grab a mask. Like there were times i walk outside and forget it. Oh, i run back in the office and like put three masks on just in case. But now <laughs> at that point that like something happened when the weather changed and then the CDC said, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask outside. So now it kind of became weird the last two weeks here. And, it, and I would say like in a good way where community is coming back. The difference is I think in the, in the peak of the pandemic, and you're talking about like, let's start it off with, let's say March of last year. I mean, everybody here, Thought the world was gonna end. I was one. Like for a minute, I was like, "This is." i be honest with you, Like, this is the end of the business, and I don't know what I'm gonna do for a career. And like, my girlfriend's nervous. My parents are sick. All these things converge at the same time, and thank God everybody's healthy now. But like me and my girlfriend and Chris, my co-founder, are the only people I know that didn't get really sick. And it was like that's when all that's happening. It's super super scary. At the same time, all the protests are happening in New York, and our block was like ground zero. So the whole block's on fire. Like. Our, our, building literally was the only, the only store on the entire block that didn't get broken into or have something happen like more than once. The only place. So we had, for that window of time, we have cameras cause we have, we keep stuff here every now and then we have our store. Well, front you have a Beautiful there. storefront too, right? Yeah. So that's all kind of everything got boarded up but not the first like two nights cause nobody knew that anything was gonna happen. So it's all glass. And there's a, there was a 1982 Aston Martin sitting in the front. And then there was all these glass windows around it, and there was a mantle card and a, and a game worn Jordan jersey. All that stuff got taken out of the car. State. So we have a security camera that aims down to the street, and you know everything. The world's collapsing. I'm sitting in my apartment, like watching the security camera all night. And you have like the whole block is nuts, and they're breaking into Stock X and destroyed it. And then the uh, the restaurant across the street, Saint Ambrose, gets destroyed. I'm just like waiting on them to destroy this car. You know what I mean? Like I'm just watching it, and I'm thinking about like the business and what the future is going to be. And it's just like a weird, crazy moment for that one week where all these things were converging. But then you look at it in retrospect, and this happens, this is a good parallel to the, to the collectibles market too. Everybody over-indexes like the bad stuff. Something bad happens and you overcorrect and you think like this is the absolute end of the world. This is where it all ends. And I got I have a whole new life I gotta figure out. And then you over-index when things are good. So I'm looking outside right now, and everyone's like, Crazy and back to normal and people are hugging each other and like giving hard daps in the street and like no one's worried about anything anymore. And you start thinking like, you know, India's getting killed right now. There's a couple other sort of population centers that are getting killed again right now and have to go back into sort of lockdown. And you think like maybe I'm a little more skeptical now thinking about it. Like maybe people are over-indexing the other way now and it's going to overcorrect. But it's one of those crazy moments where like it's good to see New York now coming back out of it in a way that community's starting to build again. But it's hard to forget like how bad that two month window was. Cause me and a bunch of people here never left. Like we didn't nobody here ran to Miami and nobody was like jumping around crazy and saying, like I'm never coming back. I was here the whole time, knowing that New York would come back. At the same time, like there was a there was it was a super, super touch and go for like that two or
0: three month window, no question when it's going bad it's hard to envision it ever getting better when it's going good it's hard to think about when it's going to go bad That's it's it. a funny little it's a funny little thing for the hobby right cuz we're in a little bit of a down a little bit of a downturn in the hobby right now and and you get a lot of chicken little's you get a lot of skies falling the whole deal and and you know what there'll be a turn and people will be like shit I should have bought in when it was down you know I should have been buying when it was down I mean, it's, it's just like it's it's weird
2: because you guys know like you know, Jordan rookies are the bellwether a little bit to a certain degree. And when you print the $750,000 auction result, it's easy for everyone to go a million dollars is next. You know I mean? That's just the logical place your brain goes when something goes from, you know, $26,000 to $750,000 in three and a half months, it's obvious. But then you see like when it pulls back and consolidates and all of a sudden it's at, you know, 550, then 400, 450, like it starts bouncing around. Not, again, this is not investment advice, but no market, corrects in a way that doesn't keep the the sort of the efficiency out of whack like that. You want to have moments where things sort of take a breather. You want to have situations where you let some new people come in and maybe get access because it's a little bit out of their price range. To me, everything that happens, especially in the hobby, is a perfect example of it. It's healthy. It needs to happen. But it's also something that you look at a lot of these 20, 30, 40 years of history, and you can go back and look at those peaks and valleys and see what happened right after and, and really understand that history – History looks the same a lot, and it repeats itself in a way that it's it's a lot easier for me, as you know, late 30s to zoom out and think about what was happening. Go back to like 2008, 2009, where it was the end of the world before too, into 2010, the last time there was a real sort of crisis that affected people's money and their and their well-being and their livelihoods. You can zoom out a bit and say like, you know, what I've been through this before. I know what the I know what the bottoms look like, what the tops kind of look like and feel like, and I can sort of be comfortable knowing that at a certain point there might be a buying opportunity. I think a lot of a lot of young kids have never seen. I don't want to talk. I want to age myself out. But these young kids never had that rug pull. If the rug pull is like you know, base Luca Prisms, like that's that's the best type of rug pull. It's not like the end of the world. You know what I mean? It's something that, that you can look at and understand. It's not really like it's not a it's not a, a medical or a health crisis. You know what I mean? Like that. We should all be so lucky at the worst thing that happens that I lose a thousand dollars on a on a basketball card. You know.
0: It's funny that you know that it's almost chapter and verse because the Luca was two thousand, now it's thousand. So obviously I mean, the
2: literally, like I was thinking about literal, because I, I, you know I don't want to go into the rabbit hole on it. Yep. But yeah, when you when you see a kid on Instagram and he has three hundred PSA tens, like you know, let's think, let's think let's just be logical about it. You know, that's all I'm saying. Zoom so out. Zoom so
0: the Luca based prism will not be coming to Rally Road anytime soon. I can't I cannot say that and I will not say that, but I
2: will say <laughs> confirmed nor deny. Like you know, I'll I'll take one out of personal collection if that was the case because I'm not. It's also something like I like and I care about it. It's a great car, and I also believe in in the future of Luca. But at the same time, it's like, it's it's there's dynamics at play that are not too far into the regular investment markets or regular supply demand dynamics. And I think that when people see these rug pulls, they overcorrect, no question. But you know, using like seven hundred fifty thousand dollars to four hundred thousand as an indicator of like the entire vintage basketball card market, the pre 1990 vintage basketball card market is done. There's nowhere else to go. I think it's a little bit crazy when you when you zoom out a bit and see what what it's done over the last 18 months alone, you know?
0: Yep.
1: So let's talk a little little bit about the effect of media on assets, and specifically that everyone kind of is their own media channel in today's day and age. I mean, we could perhaps for example, like, you said you listen to us on clubhouse, right? But think about all of these trends that started on Clubhouse, right? The egg card, which went from like $5 to like Mm -hmm. hundreds was literally a trend that started on Clubhouse. So, I mean, we could go a bunch of different ways, Cage, feel free to jump in, but I'm curious, how do you keep a level head from an investor standpoint when all of this, I don't wanna call it noise, but media voices are onto collectibles? How are you able to make really sound decisions versus I'm following that guy's advice or this
2: guy's advice? what do you that's a, that's a super good question, man. And it's something that one of our investors, who so I look at kind of like a mentor and is somebody who just is really smart in all marketplaces named Howard Linsnan, who's uh, an investor from, from a fund called Social Leverage, one of the earliest investors in Rally. He's always preaching like, there's no such thing as noise, it's just filter failure, which I truly do believe in. And it's the idea that if people truly believe it, right? And there's somebody who has a history of being consistent, at least with their opinion, and they've been ahead of a couple of markets, they made some good decisions, they probably made some bad ones too, but if they have some hits under their belt, they have a, a dynamic where their audience isn't brand new, just coming in from some sort of like, you know, hustle or something they put on in one place where you saw somebody's follower account jump from, you know, a hundred thousand to a million in a week. Somebody who has real feet and real skin in the game, that's someone that I'm comfortable listening to, and that's someone that like I have less filters for a person like that because I believe it. It's a little bit more trustworthy. It's got track record. When you see somebody come out and they get onto a platform, and Clubhouse is a perfect example. Clubhouse set up. A, a space where somebody could be brand new, unheard, tap into the right room and get a massive following overnight, but not necessarily have that track record. You look on their Twitter, you look on their Instagram, and it's like this person, you know, is not who they seem to be on Clubhouse. So like they're not, they weren't talking about the same things two years ago. You're looking at old blog posts and they're talking frantic or doing some pump and dump scheme. Like those are people that I try to filter out sooner than later. Because if you let that – if you let one or two points from those people make their way into your brain, it kind of sticks around. That's dangerous. I think it's like – you know, Gary Gary B gets a bad rap. I'll, give, I'll be honest with you. Now, a lot of people look at it like when people think about who they follow. He's got this crazy following that will absolutely do the things that he tells them to do. But in his defense, he doesn't – he's not pushing narrative. He's, for the most part, at least from what I know – and I'm not super close to them. We don't have like super personal relationship. I can respect his brand, uh, his voice. I would say because his wow. community, because he has is a just, track record. He has he's got a track record. record, and he's also got a community that's not super polarized and like angry. He's got like people that follow him are just super nice people, and How they're
0: about this? He has a track record of good decisions. For yeah, what he fired, he fired Andrew. That,
2: <laughs> that's that's a horrible <laughs> way to put it. But that being said, I'm using that as the example. It was like, the best decision you could have ever made. I'm a horrible <laughs> employee. <laughs> but there's, there's definitely a contingent that looks at it and says, like, you know, he's just telling people to do certain things. It's not the case. He really does put his money where his mouth is on a lot of this stuff. And he's been, you know, what it's worth You think about it in terms of just cards, like he's been preaching the same message for you know five straight years. A lot of people are brand new preaching the same thing. So it's more the filter failure part that I try to pay attention to than the actual noise. Cause yo, it's all noise. Like there's so many, there's so many inputs right now. If you don't pick and choose like who you listen to, it doesn't matter what the platform is. You're going to be underwater, you know?
1: Well, one thing with Gary, typically what happens when there's a pump and dump is the insider's profit, the public loses. Well, with the, the case with Gary is Gary might profit. I have no idea, but a lot of his followers just public followers have also profited they've profited quite a bit because he's been talking about cards in 2017. yeah so okay. it doesn't fit the criteria of a so that's a great
2: way and he's everything, incredibly consistent
0: everything he's ever bought from me is 10x what he paid for it from me so he knows what he's doing yeah it's also
2: but it's, it's like you know the difference between like you guys have it so it's like i'll give you the credit you guys have community in a way that people throw that word around is reckless you know what i mean like community doesn't mean a bunch of people who joined the cult and you are gonna do whatever you say and you kind of see what those look like you know what i mean that's the difference between like you look at a party versus a ritual parties all end the same it's everybody runs in and to your point is that bad culture at the end it's like shit. i stayed a little bit too long you know what i mean the, the <laughs> rituals are like the thing like peloton is a good example too where like people put that and created good habits from it and learned about it and became a big part of their life i think a lot of people would like gary and a few other people who built real community it's a part of their life in a way they're not just there as a tourist to make a little a quick cash grab and get out. So like having a robust community and people that care about what you're saying, it contributes to the fact that you're building a real community and you have real voice. It's not just noise.
0: You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I agree. So Let's talk about LeBron. Or should we just stay away from that? <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, LeBron, LeBron's old news. That's last week. That's last so up. we have
1: a community of you know, 5,000, 6,000 people that listen to us. Um, Rally's growing. What are some needs? Like, let's say I'm on the other end. You know, I'm an aspiring entrepreneur. I love the hobby. I want to find a way to make this my career. And what's cool is I said 2020 was the year that card prices went crazy. I think 2021 is kind of where businesses start to follow that trend and really businesses kind of grow. And you're seeing that businesses get funding, they're growing, they're hiring. If I'm on the other end and I'm listening to this and I want to help, what's Rally looking for? What are some jobs you guys are looking for? What's some growth? What's the future of Rally look like? And maybe I could be a part of it.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, listen, we're looking for everything. I think that anybody who really cares about these asset classes and somebody who has an idea about what, what, the direction we should be going in, I'm somebody just personally, I think everybody that, Anyone who, who has has seen me or emailed me or texted me or found me on Twitter or wherever, like they know I'm, just, I'm way accessible and I want to always talk to, to the people who really are part of this community. But anyone with a concept or an idea or direction we should be going in is somebody that we want to talk to. So we're actually putting up a ton more like actual job posting. I think in the next like five to six days on our website. But we'll also be in a position that like, you know, when we think about the way this company is structured, it's a mix of like operations, finance, and product. And all those roles are... Are set up in a way that we try and find just smart, ambitious people who want to be a part of this mission. And if you're that person, we bring you on board and we find the job for you when you get here. You know what I mean? So there are people that came in that were interning in like operations. They're on the product team now. And there are people that came in they were just like, let me, let me, you know, run a grab coffee type of thing. But then they start putting together some long form pieces and they become like people that are working on content. So we're always looking for people that actually care, who have their own voice, who want to build sort of network and want to build community with us. And there's always a job for somebody like that here. You know what I mean? So that's like, reach out to me direct. My reach, my, my Twitter DMs are open and my email is really easy to find. So, by all means, feel free to. My, I think my phone number is out too. Like, feel free to text me too if you want. I got those all night.
0: <laughs>
2: what do you collect, Rob? What, what are your favorite things to collect?
0: Might be easy to ask him what he doesn't collect.
2: That's the problem. It's like, I'll, tell you, I'll be honest. Like, I think. know not investment advice and i've I've divested from most of the stuff that that almost all of it that matches anything that's on rally and i've never like sold any of my own stuff to rally or anything like that but i think that my my stuff is super esoteric and weird too so i'll i was over the last two three years i had the cards that i kind of wanted there were one or two sort of you know grails that i didn't have that i haven't sort of been able to immediately get at this point that i don't know if i don't know if i even want as much as i used to because things have changed but also, when I was growing up, I think we, me and my friends, always looked at like we thought like Frank Thomas and like you know Fleer Ultra Shack rookies were gonna like buy houses for us at a certain point. You realize really quickly that's not the case. I think so. Like your habits and like your things that you look at change. So when I got to a point that I had a little bit of money and was gonna buy a lot of those cards from my youth that I wasn't paying attention to had skyrocketed. You know, I mean? like the Griffey rookies were still accessible. But there was a lot of stuff that I thought I was gonna be able to have access to that I didn't. So I changed my habits a little bit and thought about like the 90s and the late 80s. And I went a little bit deeper into like vintage video games, which I I, I really like the collection that I have right now. And then I started thinking, I think like a lot of people are talking about in the last like three, four months, the non-traditional non-sports cards. So like, you know, the I have an absurd amount of like boxes of Fortnite series one cards, which I'm thinking in my head like gonna be the next Pokemon, but maybe not. But at the same time, like, I went really deep into the star wars cards and i wasn't even a huge fan of the movie but i love those series one and series two cards and that was something i started picking up a while back i think that there's uh, a lot of like the ancillary video game stuff the mario tips cards and sticker cards that came out in the late 80s that i was always trying to get my hands on that i moved that i recently started putting a bigger collection together on but then there's stuff that makes no sense that will probably never make money and like i was super super into tickets before like the crazy ticket boom that we're in right now but not necessarily like graded tickets. So I have like a shoebox of every Jordan playoff game. And some of them are super beat up, some are just the stubs, but that was something that like, when anyone came over that always show them and everyone was like, yeah, that, that's cool, I guess. And like I gave a bunch away on Instagram last year. And in retrospect, like I never thought about that as a part of the hobby that would go super, super crazy like it has. And so like, I, it's collecting things that make me happy, but don't necessarily have, or I didn't perceive them to have real value. So it's stuff like that. And then there's the really left field stuff like um, what's a weird, like I have a bunch of weird stuff from like Steve Jobs desk from when he was still at Apple and like uh, weird New York stuff. Like I bought a box from, from Bernie Madoff's office too. So like all his his like cards and weird pens and stuff, those will be worth nothing. That's a weird moment in time that I want to hold on to. I don't know why. So stuff like that, that I have that may never be worth anything is part of the collection that my
0: girlfriend refuses to acknowledge. And I keep it tucked away in an office and that's it. Well listen, these guys can't do it, but I will they got some cool stuff coming up on the on the calendar. Forget about a declaration of independence. I mean, give me a break with that stuff. But you know, like Pele rookie card, right? I mean you got the Tupanamba, right? the PSA eight that's coming up, which I think is a cooler card than the one that I personally owned. You know, the one that's like a postage stamp. This is a cool yeah. one, more color, cool pink the, Darren card. Ravel did not like
1: the card you
2: owned.
0: No. But he, now, really Ravel, for
2: some reason, thinks, like, small cards are not cool. I talked about it all the time. Like, some, he has a weird thing with, like, size of card relative to value, I think. He can't grab
0: right. around that stamp as a card, you know? Meanwhile, I, yeah. Ravel and I have, like, a hate-hate relationship. Or a love-love relationship. I don't know exactly what you want to call Yo, it. I, love, I think he doesn't like
2: blank-back cards, too. Like, he likes yeah, but, to
0: have a like, back on his cards. But he likes perforated cards that are made from tuna fish companies. Ravel likes cards that are made to be in his collection. Yo, he's right? got that. He back. has it. I tell him that
2: all the time. He's got like an oddball collection that's like pure Revel. You got to find another <laughs> yeah. Revel to exit some of it. You know what I mean? Exactly. You know, yeah. you want
0: to sell it, but you need, you need five of you. You need somebody to clone you to buy it <laughs> to find somebody to exit that. <laughs> that's, so that's, that's, that's the exact right way to put it, dude. That's so good. It's, uh, but hey, look, I mean, but that's the cool part about it, right? It's We are all collectors, right? And, you know, it, somebody like you giving access to some of these things. Some of the stuff, I mean, just take a look, guys, at rallyroad.com. Take a look at the app take a look at what they got com- coming up there's some really amazing historical pieces i mean did you, just, you guys just did a pokemon set right you just did a 99 Yeah, yeah so there's, there's a, did there's that one close in like 13 seconds It's something nuts but like
2: <laughs> God, we don't use that as a met- we try to get as many people involved as possible like that's that was a metric for us early on and we realized like that's just to say like we sold out in a minute i <laughs> could make that happen it's, it's a bad metric to measure success though so we stopped doing like investment velocity as a metric right With that being said like the Pokemon set's a good example. So there's, you know, 11 registered PSA 10 full sets of that 99 base set. And we knew like we, way back, we we're like, we want to get our hands on at least one. And now we have two sets which are on rally, both of which are sold out. One started trading, it was up something like 400% since the IPO. And now we put that second one on because we do not just want to sort of get the best in class, but we want you to have access to the stuff that no one else does. So, like, you know, nobody has access to two sets. We do, and you can too, is kind of part of like the narrative that we went with there. Then there are other times where like, you know, we'll buy at auction opportunistically. We feel like it is a one-of-one one, and we feel like the data supports the fact that we should own it and that our investors should own it. So the um, the the sneakers that Kobe wore and then gifted to LeBron, which he then wore in a game too, like the only place to get that was at auction. We weren't going to let that get away if it met our criteria and fit within that price that we wanted to pay for it that we felt like was meaningful and had room for opportunity in the future. So that's one that's coming up soon too. And these are like... These were all sort of iconic moments, and you think about 1999, when that Pokemon set first came out. I don't know anybody, like I wasn't big into Pokemon because I was a little bit older at that point, but I was paying attention in a way that I was just like, this is, this is a phenomenon, this is impossible to ignore, never thinking about it as a collectible. I think the same way, like game one sneakers were always a sort of subgroup within memorabilia to a certain degree, it was cards, jerseys, bats, The idea of footwear, because some of those are like the way Nike made sneakers, maybe like over time, they start to degrade, they got to be kept a very specific way. That's something that came to prominence again, like when the sneaker culture boomed and it became like a very similar to a car. So getting our hands on more of those really unique pieces, the stuff that we feel like we're seeing around a bit of a corner is always where we want to be. And we want to get that best possible version, the most unique possible version to the investors. So whether it's multiple versions of a one of 11 set, and we have two of those, so we're keeping like 20% of them in the world on Rally. (laughs) Or it's something where it's a true one of one that has a crazy story behind it for two legends like the Kobe LeBron sneakers. That's like squarely in the lane of where we want to be in the future, whether it was sports or any other asset class.
0: Think about that for a second, Andrew. There's there's 11 total sets out there. And I think there might even be less now because I think people have like broken them up a couple of them. Yeah, WCC is right selling a bunch of
2: singles. So I don't know what's going on with that. They so. might be.
0: Yeah, but Cage, okay, when you, you complete you guys your first said, I'm it? gonna get two. I'm gonna we we have one, but let's just get a second one. Let's just it it right
2: if the opportunity presented itself. And it was some of those situations where, like, you know, we've we have this great network around us now of collectors and specialists and brokers and some of the auction houses that when there's a great opportunity, like we get we get the phone call first a lot of the time, and it's hard for us to turn down everything. It's like we turn down a lot of it, but if we get a thousand sort of inbound, and this isn't out of the question, I get like you know, a few hundred or close to a thousand inbound over the course of a couple of weeks when we're, when we're doing, we're in the sourcing, in the, in the lane of like sourcing and we're aggressively sourcing in those windows. We'll take, you know, 10, 15, 20 certain times because we do still want to find like that best of or the one where someone says like, damn, they have two of those. Like we always want to be in that situation so that you can have those same bragging rights and have real equity in that and like the best of or the one of or the very few of, you know?
0: It's amazing. It really is you are in New York. Oh my god, how,
2: how I love the sirens. I yeah, miss the it. sirens. That's how you know it's that's how you know it's back. Like it's sirens, it's like a mix of like crazy people and also like regular people, everyone on the street, like shouting at each other, like regular people in crazy conversations. You need all of that to have the full landscape okay, This I is the love first the last three weeks, and then the first week it really feels back like that, you
1: know. I have an empanada guy that comes by and rings a bell, and now Cage gets hungry every time
0: he hears that. Oh, forget it, it's like Pavlov's dog. <laughs> Well, listen,
2: I hope, I hope I get to that point that Andrew's at where, like, I can retire to another world and just have the empanada guy come knock on my door. You know what I mean? You know, what? I'm so
0: lucky. The dream. You know, my kids <laughs> ask me, like, Daddy, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I tell them, I want to be Andrew. Uh, <laughs> I just the, the that's the deal. I, want to, I, I think we want to all be. are.
1: I think we all are, Andrew. I mean, if we're living our life to the fullest, we're happy and we're pursuing and are challenging ourselves. Like, I think that's what today's conversation is about. Like, Isn't he? He's like,
0: think, he's like Yoda. He's like Yoda. Yo, I'm going to steal that. What, I am like, might what, <laughs> at
1: some point and
2: use that. I'll credit you that, I promise. <laughs>
1: He's yeah. like, hey, yo, well, I'm telling you. So. One of the re- things that I think was one of the reasons why TopShot was, was so successful is I think they invested heavily in UI UX. No question. And UI UX isn't just about the digital. It's about the whole scope of things, right? Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's cross-platform. And one of the things that caught my eye that you did really well, and I mean, the app is beautiful. It, it's so user-friendly. But when you guys did the hard court, the Kobe's final game floor, when people invested in that, you also sent them the like a piece of the floor or like a replica of the floor in the mail, right?
2: Yeah, that's the and that, it's weird because that's stuff that we've done. We've always I've always wanted to have like and you said earlier on, as Kay said, like having the tangible piece of something is important to me as a collector, and I want to make sure it's not just in that digital portfolio. So we've always thought about like the cool stuff we can add on. And like the Declaration of Independence has like a, a stand-up version that's like in Lucite that has uh, a, like a small piece of like vintage parchment that is printed on so you can have this whole little deal toy that goes with it. And when we do that Megalodon, that's something crazy that we're working on. So anytime we have like a marquee asset or something that really is going to get a lot of attention, we want to make sure there's a tangible piece that goes with it. The Kobe floor was like the nice presentation that went with that. We did a donation to the Mambesita Academy like on behalf of the investors the same way. Like we always there's more to it than just finance. I think finance in general for a long time, it's been it's been this make money by any means, like, you know, kill off anybody who gets in your way type of thing. This isn't like lip service. We really don't want it to be that. We don't want this to be like a day trading platform. There's plenty of places you can get that. I don't think that should be associated with the moment. So like, to your point too, part of that UX and part of that UI, and we have a huge update coming to the app at sometime soon once you sort of get through a couple other hurdles, but the idea of like having that extension of your brand be like our museum space here in Soho and having it be sort of like those add-ons when you make an investment or having it be some of the events and the, and the activations that we'll do over the course of the rest of this year, that's all a part of it. I think a big part of what's missing right now, like everybody, or I should say people from the outside looking in will say things like, yeah, well, collectibles only ran up during the pandemic. I think people are gonna see like the national, which I, was, I assume will happen at this point It's going to be like insane this year it's not going to be a situation like it's been you're going to see when those people come together and you're going to see a community that was not even that has always been there and if anything the in my mind the pandemic created this situation where like i want to be hands-on in that community i want to have more conversation i want to have more face to face that doesn't mean that like that all of a sudden prices go to zero or like you know people stop caring about the collectibles that they had or like The narrative of going through your mom's attic and finding stuff was a good one, but that isn't, this is all, this is called up for so long. Part of that UX, the UI of any product or any collectible vertical or any category is the fact that there's like interaction with a thing with people. I think we're gonna see more of that and we're gonna be doing more of that for sure over the course of the next, you know, call it 12 months.
1: Don't you see a future where, like, first off, I think collectibles have been, if history tells us anything, collectibles are as old as time and speculation is as old as time. But do you Mm -hmm. see a world where, you guys have these like micro museums all over the world with not just cards cards are one version of a collectible with all these artifacts that people could come, they could take a picture of, they could be like, Oh, son, like I own 5% of this skull. Like, do you see a world and maybe there's even an NFT angle attached to that? Do you see a future like that?
2: Yeah. Without, I mean, for us, it's on the roadmap. So it's like, you know, we always, do, we always try and do things ourselves and put our money up to make this work before we sort of open it up and make it, the thing for the public. We want to kind of like make sure that it works and makes sense for us. So the first museum space that we did is entirely ours, and we're expanding that space. We're going to be adding more to it, like the clubhouse element to it. And we're going to have like a podcast studio and all that stuff kind of set up as part of it. That's a big part of our footprint here in Soho. We don't want to lose that. At the same time, like we've had so much inbound interest from, you know, institutions and the hotel chains and like – people that want to work with us because they know that that community extends so much further than just, you know, people talking on, on discord about a card or something like they know how big that community really is. They want to access the people on our platform the same way we want to access a bigger group that they might have access to. So bringing those pieces together and having that roadshow where it's a real living museum and it's everywhere, not just New York, not just LA. We have massive, massive user groups in parts of Texas and, you know, a bunch of parts of the Midwest. And like, you know, in Iowa, we have a huge, crazy, I would never expect this really early on. We saw that Iowa was like a hub for us. We, I would love to have like a, a rally museum in Iowa, like in Iowa City or in Des Moines. Like that's, a. we think about where our user base is, where the people who care about it most are, but more so where potential communities are, where if they came in and saw it and held a piece of it or had a conversation in the room with a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex, it's a different conversation, a different community. So that's like a huge thing for us. I think that but just a community as a whole of collectors, they want to have these conversations now. And it's kind of like out of the shadows a bit where it became cool to have these things that I think were looked at as kind of countercultural until the last like four or five years. You know what I mean? So we want to go where that is and be able to build that community.
1: Well, it's a draw. I mean, there's a ton of retail space open and there's no one wants to go to it. it it's, it's a draw. Uh, yeah. We're going on an hour. This has been hands down one of my favorite episodes, the
0: Thanks. rally half.
1: I'm sitting
2: here wondering how do I get my hands on a rally? I get, I get, I it's
0: on their I'm, website. I'm, they got a hole. If you go to the
2: website, bottom left. To talk about I think market. it's this one might be sold out, but I got you. I'm gonna take I'm gonna send I'm gonna get your addresses after this. I'll send out a care package for sure. We got some good some much better stuff coming and some other stuff that never made it to production. I'll make sure you get some of the rare stuff because the uh, like even those stock certificates on eBay are going for like triple or three or X, the stuff that we have with the Kobe. So if we can get you something good, maybe it becomes a collectible at a certain point. We'll IPO it in like a year. I thought a rally cap was just to
0: be like turned it inside out. You need a couple of runs at the end of the game. All caps can be rally caps, but I like one you, of yours. You
2: know what's funny? Like early on, I thought about trying to do something with like the Yankees and do like an inside-out version where the rally's on the yeah, inside, rally, and the Yankees hats right. on the outside. I was like, let's try and build this platform before we start thinking
0: about the merch that goes so You with get them. out to California, you go with the Angels. but they had the Rally Monkey for a while? Yeah. That's what you got to do. Yeah, no, you're right. I, we thought about like mascots and stuff
2: too. There's not a single thing that we haven't, or at least I haven't been like that crazy shower thought where I'm like, this is going to work. <laughs> this is what makes it big. This is going yeah. to work. I come to like an executive meeting and it's like me and our whole team. And they're like, let's just focus on the app for right now. Let's not worry about that other <laughs> stuff. Yet. You know what I mean? Like, my crazy ideas go into a separate
0: bucket. We get back to those eventually. And the bucket is full. There's three buckets by oh, right now. Full. Super full. No question. Well listen, we appreciate you having it we appreciate you having it on, man. You know, there's a lot of time that you spent with us. And I mean, um the one thing I'll take from it is you know, I have really come around on on you know on fractional shares on apps like this, um, and not having to hold that that tangible you know asset itself. It's great that you're also trying to add in or layer in that tangible asset as well. That's a cool thing. But to anybody out there listening, I mean, one of the ping points for me with collecting, especially as you start to get, you know, looking for those those real collectible items, and you start to spend some legitimate money on the stuff, is you know that lack of regulation the fact that anybody can do anything they want. And, I mean, I think you've made it pretty pretty damn clear today that you just can't you just can't yeah, do not, it, you know. Really. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, you know, that in and of itself. I mean, I'd love to see the rest of the hobby be you know, regulated in some form or another. You know, as far as like this is a forward-looking statement, and well, I mean, you know, yeah. it sucks. You got your hands, you know, your, your handcuff. But yeah. I mean, it really is a good thing because you're talking about real assets here, tangible assets. I mean, what's that Declaration of Independence? going to what's the uh, two million dollars or something like that? Yeah, yeah. And at twenty-five dollars a share, what happens that it
2: is really accessible in a way that? You know whether it's twenty-five bucks or twenty-five thousand, I don't wanna I wanna have the same amount of information that I can access as a buyer. So that's always been our thing. If you want to spend twenty-five grand, by all means. Maybe you're a sophisticated, accredited investor, and maybe you don't need to read all the disclaimers and all the details. But I want to put that front of mind so that if you're only spending twenty-five bucks and you only have a hundred, like I wanna make sure you know exactly what you're putting a portion of your net worth into, no no matter how big or small it actually is, you know.
0: Yep.
1: Oh what's so what's so cool is like I remember hearing like, like Growing up, my kids, my friends' uh, grandparents would buy them for their birthday, like a Disney stock certificate, right? Sure. Or Harley Davidson stock certificate. Like I'm sitting here thinking, as you like the Declaration of Independence, like instead of giving a kid a hundred bucks or buying them a gift, I'm a few shares of the of, of of a true artifact of U.S. history. Like, yeah,
2: it's incredible, you guys. It's it's oh, so sorry, I it, man. But you said it too. It's like you know. I'm being real with you to a lot of these kids, like Luca is more important than like Elon Musk. So buying a share of Tesla, which costs, you know, hundreds of dollars is not the same as buying just like a raw version of a, a base Luca rookie. You know what I mean? Like that's these this new generation cares more about the things that they that they're interested in and their hobbies and like communicating and like building communities than just investing in a ticker symbol. So if we can put that at the forefront. Then we're we're achieving the mission to a certain degree. No question.